Well, this morning we're returning to our study here in the book of John. If you weren't with us last week, we set aside the normal series that we're doing in John, and we considered a little more the Lord's admonition back up in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13, where the Lord says, Love one another even as I have loved you. So we dug a little bit deeper into that command as to exactly what does that mean? What does it mean? And what does it look like? And how are we to carry out that command? If you were not with us last time, you might want to stop and listen to that sermon because I think it was valuable. Uh, it's valuable as we consider the importance of the church, the value of the church, uh, the reality of the fact that we're all part of Christ's church uh, and, and that we're all here in this room together, part of the church that Christ is building, part of the providential appointment uh, for us all to be in the fellowship in very unique times uh, in the world in which we live, volatile times, really. Every day we're seeing... Uh, some of our freedoms are being taken away in this country and uh, very real threats of open persecution uh, upon uh, believers in this country may be a reality in our lifetime. Uh, I, but I made mention of the fact that the biggest enemy for the church is not the external. It's not the culture. It's not the government. Uh, the biggest threat to the church is always internal. It's always internal. Uh, the church is never destroyed from the outside. The church is always destroyed from within. It's always heart attitudes. It's always heart attitudes that lead to disunity. That's always the downfall of the church. It's always a lack of Christ-like love towards each other. So last week was really a, a heart check, if you will, to make sure that we're really considering if we're genuinely loving each other as Christ has loved us. We spent quite a bit of time in Philippians chapter 2, in order to make sure that we're obedient to the command, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you guard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Right? That, that's the, that's the, the key in the Christian faith, living together. Treating others in utter humility. Ha- having our focus completely on the Savior, the precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, I I would think you'd be greatly challenged, encouraged, blessed uh, if you didn't have the opportunity to listen to that sermon last week, if you went back and listened to it. And perhaps even if you listened to it, it might be helpful if you listened to it a second time or a third time. Because if we're going to maintain spiritual unity in troubling times in in a culture uh, that, as I've said several times from this pulpit, I think biblically is under the active judgment of God, as in Romans chapter 1, in the midst of a growing congregation that is beginning to really start to stress this building, uh, then we're going to have to think more about each other. We're going to have to start thinking more about each other. We're going to have to start loving each other as Christ loved us. And it's going to require at some point for us to set aside our personal preferences for the benefits of others, for the benefit of the ministry at the present and the benefit of the ministry uh, long-term in the future. And with the preeminent uh, goal of everything we do, as it says on the front of the bulletin, everything is for the glory of God. Always looking at the glory of God, thinking about God, thinking about his glory. How can we honor God? How can we honor Christ in everything that we do? Now, remember again here in the context of John chapter 14 in our study, we're still the night before the Lord's crucifixion. So it's Thursday night. And in just a few hours, literally just a few hours, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed the same time that the Jews offer the Passover lambs or the sacrifice, the lambs at Passover. He is in the upper room with his 11 <coughs> true disciples. Judas, the, uh, the betrayer, has been dismissed. So he's speaking to those that are, are his true followers, true disciples, those who truly belong to him, those who are genuinely saved, genuine disciples of Christ. 
and he's loving them. And he's really giving them final instructions because he's going to soon depart from them. It's something that he has said to them numerous times, but they failed to receive that teaching. They have chosen not to hear repeatedly. And I think we went through this last week or the time before. Repeatedly, the Lord has said to his disciples, in essence, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles and mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he'll be raised up. He said that numerous times. But but they wouldn't listen. They, they couldn't bear the concept. They couldn't uh, bear to hear the reality that Christ was going to uh, uh, be killed. They, they, the concept of a, a dying Messiah just had no place in their theology. Therefore, again, they chose not to listen. Although this is exactly what the Old Testament said would happen to the Messiah when he arrived. That he'd be grossly mistreated, that he would be abused, uh, that, that he would be despised and forsaken of men. He would be a man of trouble. In verse 24, just in the near context, John chapter, or John chapter 12, verse 24, Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's trying to help them understand what's coming in the future. John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. When he had gone out, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, uh, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify himself in him and will glorify him immediately. Again, they don't know what's coming. He does. And the, the departure of Judas Iscariot starts to set into motion uh, the activities surround the cross. Right? The death of Christ coming in just a few hours. Verse 33 of John 13. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. Uh, again, he's telling them he's going to leave. He has to leave. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. I'm leaving. I'm going away. I'm departing, and you can't come now. You see the same thing here in John, in John chapter 14, the top of the chapter. Look at verse 2. I go. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 12. I go to the Father. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. Verse 28, you heard that it is said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. So again, repeatedly, he's telling them he's departing. He's going to leave. And again, they can't handle it. And because they can't handle it, their whole world at the moment is being turned upside down. Because they had all these preconceived uh, um, ideas about the Messiah coming and setting up his messianic kingdom immediately. Because again, the Messiah in the culture was seen as the conquering king, king who would come and put down all of Israel's oppressors and restore her sovereignty and her glory. And they saw themselves as important, so they saw themselves either sitting at the right hand or the left hand uh, of the Lord in positions of authority. And now he's talking about leaving, he's talking about departing. And you know, they'd given up everything on a personal level to follow him. And now it looks like he's forsaking them. And again, that obviously troubles their heart. So in this scene, in the hours before the crucifixion, there in the upper room, uh, this Thursday evening, the night before the Lord's crucifixion, you have to understand it's in somewhat of an emotional turmoil. It's an emotional turmoil. The Lord had just told them that one of their own was uh, going to betray him into the hands of his enemies. And that's causing them sadness, confusion, trouble of heart. 
And on top of that, you have Christ telling Peter, who's somewhat the leader of the group here at the time, that that he's going to deny Jesus three times. And then Christ telling them that each of them are really going to follow in Peter's footstep. They're all going to flee from Christ. They're all going to forsake him. They're all going to deny him. So again, their hearts are full of anxiety and trouble and despair. They're fearful. And at the same time, they're dealing with the shame uh, of their pride because each one of them had refused to watch each other's to wash each other's feet. But it was the greatest among them. Christ himself was stooped and girded himself and in humility met their needs. They washed, he washed the feet of his dirty disciples, something they wouldn't do for each other. So the disciples at the moment are facing a very difficult moment. Again, troubled in spirit, anxious, full of despair, fearful. In fact, the Lord himself was troubled in spirit. And you see that in chapter 12, verse 27. You see it again in chapter uh, 13 verse 22 as he's thinking about the fact of judas's betrayal so all that to say these are some very difficult times for everybody involved here at this time in the upper room the disciples are confused they're frightened their messianic expectations are crumbling the lord himself is getting ready to face the horrors of the cross uh, at calvary and, and he's doing that in essence alone because none of these men understand what's about to happen none of these men understand the horror Uh, that is uh, set before the Lord that he's about to endure. And you'll notice in the text, not one of them offer him any words of comfort because they're all too preoccupied with themselves. They're all too preoccupied with their own sadness, their own sorrow. But the Lord knows what's going to happen. And again, just in a very short few hours, he knows what's going to happen on the cross. And therefore, he's not focusing on himself. He's focusing on them. He's focusing on meeting their needs, the disciples' needs. And he's loving them to the end. He's trying to encourage their hearts. He wants to bring them comfort. He wants to alleviate their fear. Because, listen, the only thing that comforts the troubled heart is to trust and hope in Jesus Christ. The only thing that comforts the troubled heart is to trust and hope in Jesus Christ. That's it. So the first 14 verses that I read really deal with calming the troubled heart of the disciples. And there are a number of points that we'll hit along the way, and we're not going to get all that far this morning, so I'll give this to you now. You don't have to write them down. I'll give them to you again along the way, but just so you kind of know what's coming. So first point is comfort comes to those who trust and hope in Christ. Always, right? Comfort comes to those who hope and trust in Christ always. Comfort comes, number two, to those with uh, to the troubled heart by trusting in Christ's preparation for his followers. Trusting in Christ's preparation. He says, look, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but we're going to be reunited. I'm going to come back. That's what he said. So the third point would be that comfort comes to those who not only trust and hope in Christ, but they follow him, and they actually trust in his word. They believe what he says. They trust what he says, and they believe that he's the exclusive way to the Father. Comfort number four comes to those who trust in Christ's person, that, again, to know the Son is to know the Father. Comfort comes from trusting Christ's power, the fact that when he departs, his work's not going to end, but his work is going to continue on the earth. He'll make sure of that. And then comfort will come by to the troubled heart by trusting Christ's promises. Verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. And then there's one more that's beyond verse 14 that we read, but it's in verse 15 and following where the Lord says, look, I'm not going to leave you alone. Right? I'm not going to leave you as orphans. 
So he starts talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who comes in Christ's absence. Uh, so again, it's another text. I, I know those were fast. Uh, I'll give them to you again along the way. You'll be all right. It, it's another text that's just full of theological truth and full of, of practical truth. It's just a wonderful portion of Scripture, as all of John has been. So let's start to dive in here, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. Now we understand trouble in a fallen world is common to all men. Job 5, 7. For a man is born for trouble, as sparks fly upward. Job 14, 1. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and uh, uh, full of turmoil. Jeremiah laments, Jeremiah 28, verse 18, Why did I ever come forth from the womb? To look on trouble and sorrow, so that my days have been spent in shame. Jesus himself knew that uh, we would suffer trouble and difficulties in a fallen world. He says in Matthew 6, verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus told his disciples a little bit further, John 16, verse 33, In the world you have tribulation, or in the world you have trouble and suffering. Paul, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. We live in a fallen world. It's packed with trouble. Tribulation, trials, sorrows. And the scripture acknowledges that straightforwardly everywhere. But here the Lord says, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. And he wasn't saying, don't let your heart become troubled, because their hearts were already troubled. So when he says, let not your heart be troubled, it's really stop letting your heart be troubled. That's really what he's saying. Now, the word trouble, we've uh, mentioned it before. We've looked at it. It's terrasso. It means to agitate, to cause one inward commotion. Literally, it means to shake or stir up, to take away one's calmness of mind, to disturb one's equanimity to disquiet make restless strike one spirit with fear dread anxiousness do not let your heart be troubled stop letting your heart be troubled this past week as i was thinking through this i went online and did a little bit of research there's a group called the anxiety and depression association of america And they write this, they say, Anxiety disorder is the most common mental illness in the United States, afflicting over 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older. It's a little over 19% of the population. Another website I looked at, according to patient uh, tracking data from January uh, 2021, the total number of people in the United States that are on psychiatric drugs is pretty close to 77 million Antidepressants, as it breaks down, antidepressants, a little over 45 million. And surprisingly, listen, there are over 35,000 of them who are on antidepressants from age zero to five years. Age six to 17 is very close to 2.149 million children. Anti-anxiety drugs, over 31 million individuals. Nearly 1.83 7 million from age 0 to 17. Mood stabilizers, over 22 million. Almost 895,000 age 0 to 17. A recent Newsweek article, the headline, Americans are taking 34% more anxiety meds since the coronavirus pandemic started, study says. 
from the FDA or from the CDC website in, in 2020, 45,979 people died in the United States by suicide. It's one death every 11 minutes. 12.2 million adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million adults made a plan. 1.2 million adults attempted suicide. Headline from the UCLA Health. Suicide rate among teens and young adults. uh, uh, Suicide rate highest among teens and young adults. It's from March of 2022. Again from the CDC. Beginning in March 2020, the COVID pandemic in response, which included physical distancing and stay-at-home orders, disrupted the daily lives of uh, of people in the United States compared with the rate in 2019, a 31% increase in the portion of mental uh, health-related emergency department visits occurred amongst adolescents, ages 12 to 17. 31% increase in adolescents. Fox News headline, I just saw a couple days ago, majority of college students suffering from mental illness anxiety, and depression on their eyes. Again from the CDC, emergency department's visits for suspected suicide attempts among U.S. girls aged 12 to 17 has increased during COVID pandemic 51%. European news headlines are suicide increasing among Europe's youth and governments are unprepared. Another headline I read this last week of how the there's an increasing suicide rate amongst teens in Russia. Let not your heart be troubled. Stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The only thing that comforts the troubled heart is to trust and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to do something here. We're going to run a little experiment and see how you do it. It'll be a test at the end, so I'm just telling you, get your pencil ready so you can kind of take notes along the way. I'm going to read a series of things for you, and you're going to think you're going to... The list is by no means exhaustive. You may be exhausted by the time I'm done, but this is just a sampling. I'm going to read some texts of Scripture for you. Don't try to follow me. You won't be able to. But you listen carefully and see if you can pick up the theme that's repeated. Genesis 15.1 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm, I'm giving you a little cheat in case you have a hard time following. Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. To Isaac, Genesis 26.24 The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply you and your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. To Jacob, Genesis 46, verse 3, said, I am the God, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. From Moses to the nation of Israel, Exodus 13, verse, or uh, Exodus 14, verse 13, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation which the Lord will accomplish for you today. God speaking to Moses concerning uh, the king of Bashan, Numbers 21, verse 34. Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all the people in this land. Deuteronomy 1, these are the words Moses spoke to all of Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. Verse 21 uh, of that chapter, see the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go out and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Verse 29 of Deuteronomy 1. 
then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord uh, your God goes before you, for he himself will fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see the horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God has brought you up from the land of Egypt. He is with you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 11, verse 6, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. David to his son Solomon, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 13, Then you shall prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinance which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. Again, 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20, David said to his son Solomon, Be strong, courageous, and act. Do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Proverbs 3, verse 25, Do not be afraid of sudden fear, nor the onslaught of wicked when it comes. Isaiah 37, verse 6, Thus you shall say to your master, in the context it's King Hezekiah, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of the Syria have blasphemed me. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and surely I will uphold you, and surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not fear, You worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Verse 5. Do not fear, for I am with you, and I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Listen, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear. Verse 8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Uh, Have I not long since announced to you and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there any God beside me, or is there any rock? I know of no other. Isaiah 51, verse 7, listen to me who do not know uh, righteous, uh, you who know righteousness, uh, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings. Jeremiah 1.8, do not be afraid of them. I am your God, I will deliver you. Jeremiah 42.11, do not be afraid, for I am with you, I am your God. Jeremiah 47, verse 27, or 46, verse 27. As for you, Jacob, you're my servant. Do not fear or be dismayed. Lamentations uh, 3, verse 52. My enemies, uh, Jeremiah says, My enemies without cause have hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit. They have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. And I said, I'm cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. And you have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief for my cry or my cry for help. You did draw near. When I called on you, you said, Do not fear. For you have 
pled my soul's cause and you redeemed my life. Joel 2, 21, do not fear. Verse 22, Joel 2, verse 22, do not fear. Haggai chapter 2, verse 4, take courage. Zerubbabel, take courage. Verse 5, as for the promise I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, do not fear. Zechariah 8, verse 13, do not fear. In the New Testament, when the waves in Matthew chapter 8, when the waves were coming over the boat on the Sea of Galilee, when the disciples were there uh, with Christ, somehow they uh, failed to consider that the creator of the universe, the one who made the waves and the wind, he happened to be in the boat with them. Matthew 8, verse 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, you little faith? He rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was calm. Matthew 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows, two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Acts 18, verse 9, The Lord said to Paul in a night by vision, Do not be afraid any longer. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. When he was caught in a violent storm, Acts 27, verse 33, For this very night, an angel of God, who I belong and whom I serve, stood before me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, he is granted to you and all those who are sailing with you. Verse 25, Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. And it's going to turn out exactly as I've been told. 1 Peter three fourteen. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with great gentleness and reverence. Christ to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear. What you're about to suffer, behold... The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now here's the test question. Have you picked up the theme? Do not fear. Do not be afraid. The children of God are commanded in Scripture, all of Scripture, to trust God in each and every circumstance of life. The children of God are commanded in all of Scripture to trust God in each and every circumstance of life as a lack of trust demonstrates, or a lack of trust demonstrated by being fearful really reveals a shallow faith. We're commanded to trust God. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, he says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God, keep his commandments. And this applies to every person. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. So Christ says, let not your heart be troubled. And again, more accurately, I think it's really stop letting your heart be troubled. It's a command that Christ gave not only to the 11 disciples that are in front of him presently, but it's a command that he gives to all his disciples, all of his followers throughout all of history. And it's a command that he gives to whom? To us. Right? To each and every one of us. J.C. Ryle says, These verses we have now read are rich and precious truths. 
For 18 centuries, they have been particularly dear to Christ-believing servants in every part of the world. Many are the sick rooms which they have lightened, many other dying hearts which they have cheered. Because the truth is, it's only faith in the person of Jesus Christ, it's only hope in the person of Jesus Christ that can provide anyone any comfort for your troubled heart. It's only Jesus Christ. Now, I can hear somebody say, well, you know, that's a little, <laughs> that's a little oversimplistic. Now, those, are, those are nice thoughts, but it's impractical and completely out of touch. But these are the words of the Savior, aren't they? Does your text of Scripture say the same thing that I just read to you repeatedly? I think it does. These are not my words. These are the words of the Savior. These are the words of the Savior to his disciples, his disciples that are troubled in spirit, troubled in heart. And listen, either his words are true or they are not. Either his words are true or they are not. It's that simple. And whether or not these words are too impractical, quote-unquote, or too, quote-unquote, simplistic, as to that charge, this is exactly what Jesus Christ says is the solution to the troubled heart. It's pretty evident that the world has no idea how to deal with trouble in a fallen world. Again, just look how many people in this country alone are on psychiatric drugs, even children. Look how anxiety and depression are on the rise. Look how many people have lost all hope to the point of despair, even actually even kid, uh, considering or actually carrying out suicide. Now listen, it's one thing for the world to be lost. It's one thing for the, the world to be in confusion to the point of despair. It's one thing for the world to be anxious or fearful. And there are many things, I guess, to some extent in a fallen world that could negatively impact your life or cause your death, so... Uh, um, there's a certain reality. But as we know, there's so many things out there, and sadly, there's so many people that wake up every morning just crippled by such possibilities that it drives them to despair, and again, many to the point of suicide. But that's not the way it's to be for the Christian. Because a Christian or the children of God are commanded in all of Scripture to trust God. And again, here's the command of Christ, let not your heart be troubled. Now, I get it. It's tough because, in part, we live in a culture that does nothing but peddle fear. Always. The ice caps are melting. And the entire world is going to be flooded in just a few years. Look, I'm old enough to know they've been saying that for a long time now. And they just keep pushing it back. And as I was talking to somebody before, you can tell how real all this stuff is by seeing the rich people where they build their homes on Martha's Vineyard, right there on the ocean, if they were really worried about the ice caps melting. This virus can kill everybody on the planet. More than likely, it's going to. The virus of the week, right? The virus du jour, the virus of the day. And if that doesn't get you, here's another one coming, and it's going to kill everybody else who didn't, everybody else who survived the first one. News headline this last week, 70, it started like the 97% fatal brain-eating bacteria or amoeba on the loose. Ooh. Don't want to catch that. Let him stay loose, right? My favorite from last week, headline, 
22 million Americans on high alert as deadly bacteria spreads across states. And guess what? For your encouragement, it's here in Michigan and Ohio, so you can't run. Man, 22 million Americans. Is it something from outer space? Is it something we never heard of before, we've never seen? No, it's E. coli. I, I won't get too graphic with you, but where does E. coli normally live? It lives in your intestines. Most strains are usually harmless. From the Cleveland Clinic, so you know I'm not making this up. Most strains are usually harmless. Few strains cause certain bodily problems, diarrhea, etc., and so forth, vomiting, stomach pains. Comes from eating contaminated food, which is the most common way to get an E. coli infection. Most people, Cleveland Clinic, most people recover within a week without any medications. 22 million Americans. Were you on high alert before you came in this morning? Because I hope you're on high alert when you leave. You better be in fear and trembling. We need to be informed by the truth, right? Not propagandized. We need to be informed by the truth and not propagandized by fear tactics. If you weren't with us last week, one of the reasons uh, I uh, opened up in, uh, in the pastoral prayer and I read out of Psalm 24 is because verse 1 says, The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And I made mention of the fact that God is the sovereign over this world. God is the sovereign over this universe. And I absolutely guarantee you, by way of the word of God, this world is not going to be flooded and wiped out and all life be wiped out. Because God himself has promised not to do that. You can write this down and look at it later, but Genesis 9, verse 13, God says, I will set my bow in the cloud and shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about that when I bring a cloud over the earth, the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living a creature and all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature, all flesh and all flesh that is on the earth. So we're talking this morning, the elders and I were talking this morning, you know, each and every one of us always, at every point in life, we have a decision to make. Each and every one of us, at every point in life, has a decision to make. We're either going to believe the word of God or we're going to believe the word of fallen men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Those are the choices. And the truth is uh, that God has promised not to destroy this earth again uh, with water, but to destroy this current heaven and earth by way of fire. 2 Peter 3, 7. This present heavens and earth are uh, by his word are being reserved for fire. I wonder who is reserving this present heaven and earth for fire. I'll give you a little hint. It's owner. It's owner. The one who owns it. This present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Verse 10, but in the day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. And since all these things ought to be destroyed this way, what sort of people ought you be in holding conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and coming day of the Lord on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. That's the truth. That's the truth. So all the save the planet stuff, the go green stuff is absolutely nonsensical which is exactly what you'd expect from the depraved mind. As believers in God, we need to believe God's word. And we need to trust him. Because he's the sovereign. 
The earth belongs to him, not to men. He made it. He owns it. He determines how and when it comes to a conclusion, not men. So we are called as believers to trust God, to put our faith in Christ, and to not be anxious for anything. Very familiar portion of scripture, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for... I couldn't hear you. Nothing. Nothing. Thank you. Be anxious for nothing. We'll just take a shot at it. What do you think that means in the Greek? It means nothing. Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, I'm going to make a statement that's going to sound harsh. It may sound harsh to some of you. Don't mean it to sound harsh. But it's true biblically. Worry, fear, and anxiety are not indicators of care and concern, but they're actually indicators of idolatry. Worry, fear, anxiety are not indicators of care and concern. They're actually indicators of idolatry. Because if you look at the scripture, the scripture says very clearly, the scripture teaches us very clearly, we're only to fear one thing in the entire universe, and that happens to be God. Fear him and fear him only. We are not to be afraid of circumstances. We're not to be afraid of situations in our life or in this world. Fear rightly belongs to God and God alone. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There really should be, amongst all men, and especially believers, there really should be a reverential terror for the Most High Holy God. Psalm 34, verse 11. But anything that we place or elevate to the level of the place of fear, to make that an object of our fear, in reality is elevating that to a position that only rightfully belongs to God himself. In reality, it's idolatry. In reality, it's really nothing more than a form of self-worship. And that should never be a part of the life of the Christian. Look there again, verse 14, and see if your text says the same thing mine does up here. Let not your heart be troubled. Drop down to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now I want you to look very closely. If you wear glasses, put them on. I want you to get real close to that text. And I want you to see, are there any asterisks in your version? Is there any fine print? I don't see any in mine. No asterisk, no fine print. I don't see any kind of special circumstances clause out there in the margin. No exceptions. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And both are commands given by way of Christ that we can either listen, we can either choose to obey or choose to disobey regardless of whatever our circumstances, our situation is, real or imagined, that we find ourselves in. And when we find ourselves troubled, disturbed in spirit, it's because we've taken our eyes off of Christ. 
taken our mind off of him, our heart off of him. And we've put it on things which have allowed our flesh to take control. Let not your heart be troubled. Again, stop letting your heart be troubled. Stop being fearful. Again, J.C. Riley says, we have this, we have in this passage a precious remedy against that disease of a troubled heart. That remedy, he says, is faith. Heart trouble is the most common thing in the world. No rank, no class, no condition is exempt from it. No bars or bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes, partly from outward, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from whatever we fear, the journey of life is full of trouble. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holy saints find a world, uh, the world a veil of tears. Faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, to trust more entirely, to rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. All this is the prescription which our master urges on the intention of his disciples. The members of this little band sat around the table at the Last Supper had believed already. They had proved the reality of faith by giving up everything for Christ's sake. Yet what does our Lord say to here, uh, say here to them? Once more he presses them on the old lesson, the lesson which they first began, believe, 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 right? Believe, believe more, believe more distinctly on me. Let not your heart be troubled. Again, it's the command of Christ. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's the one who knows all things. He's the one who knows all events that are unfolding before them. Again, nothing catches them off guard. He is the God who's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows their hearts. He knows their emotions. He knows that their hopes are at the moment being crushed. He knows that they are bewildered, despairing, depressed. He knows that they are overwhelmed by doubt, anxiety, and fear. And he loves them to the end, to the max. He loves them. And he's pointing out to them in this situation, in these circumstances, their only hope, their only hope of comfort and trouble. The only hope that they have for a troubled heart is to look upon Christ and to look and to look and to look some more. Let not your heart be troubled. Then he adds this, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, immediately the issue that arises is how do you translate the word word believe because it's repeated twice. In both instances, it can be taken either as in the indicative or the imperative mood, which is indicative just a statement of reality, or uh, imperative, the mood of command. Some commentators take them both as imperatives. Again, both believe uh, the mood of command. Some take them, the, the first one as an indicative, just a statement of reality, and then the second one an imperative, again, the mood of command. That's what I would lean towards in my understanding. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled. You already, I really think is the essence, you already believe in God. It's indicative. It's a statement of fact. Now, the imperative, the command is, believe also in me. And and the place to start always in every aspect of life and every reality that uh, circumstance that we're in is to believe that God is, that he exists. And not only that God is and that he exists, but he is the God of comfort the God of all comfort, the God of great grace and mercy. 
1 Corinthians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Isaiah 51, verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you, who uh, are you that you are afraid of men who dies and the son of man who's like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. If you're going to fear anybody, it ought to be God. Not men. Luke 12, verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do, but I warn you that you whom to fear, fear the one who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Fear God. Back to uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. I'm going to read the rest of it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so are our comfort that is abundant through Christ. God's our comforter. God is the one who self-describes himself as compassionate and gracious. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passes in front of Moses and proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Verse 31 of Exodus 34. The Lord your God is compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9. If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion uh, before those who led them captive and will turn to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Nehemiah 9, verse 17. You are God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you do not forsake them. Verse 31. You are a gracious and compassionate God. Psalm 78, verse 38, God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity. He did not destroy them as he often restrained his anger and did not arouse his wrath. Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 111, verse 4, Psalm 112, verse 4, Psalm 116, 5, all basically say the same thing, that the Lord is gracious, righteous. Yes, our God is a compassionate God. I mean, Joel, too, he's gracious and compassionate. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. What did Jonah was told to go and proclaim the gospel uh, to, to this uh, reprobate people. And he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to go. Why? He tells us, in order, I didn't go. He says, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Because I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. James 5, 11, The Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Let not your heart be troubled. You already believe in God. God, our comforter. God, our compassionate, gracious God. Again, you already believe in him. It's it's in the indicative. It's a statement of fact. That was true for the nation of Israel. In spite of their occasional lapses into uh, idolatry, the nation of Israel really did have a heritage of faith and trust in God. Uh, Abram, in Genesis 15, 6, he believed in the Lord, and God reckoned to him his righteousness. Moses, to the nation of uh, Israel, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, Israel, the Lord our, is our God. Right? The Lord is one. 
David captures the, the heart of the nation. Psalm 21, verse 5. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Psalm 31, verse 14. As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Psalm 56. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56, verse 3. So let not your heart be troubled. You already believe in God. Again, a nation of, uh, on a whole uh, already believes in God. God who possesses, and listen, listen, God who possesses infinite power. God who possesses infinite wisdom, infinite goodness. God who possesses absolute sovereignty. God who is unchanging faithfulness. God who knows what is best for his people. God who makes all things work out together for their good and for his glory. God who is on his throne, ruling and reigning over the inhabitants of the earth, ruling over the armies of heaven so that no one can oppose his hand. The only God. The only God. And if the only God is for us, then Paul asks in Romans 8, who can be against us? The psalmist, when he thought about these things, he asks rhetorically, Psalm 42, verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? When he starts thinking about the reality of who God is and his nature and character, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. I read it at the top of the hour. Sons of Korah declaring, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and its swelling pride, and off the side it says Selah. And I think Selah is kind of like, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? We trust God. So again, in the context, the Lord says, look, don't let your heart, stop letting your heart be troubled. You already believe in God. In spite of your occasional, again, as a nation lapses into idolatry, you have a great heritage of faith and trust. But listen, here's the key, I think. This God in whom they trusted, this God in whom they believed, is the God whom they had never seen. They'd never seen him. He's invisible. He's a spirit. Nobody had ever seen him, yet they all believed in him. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 27, Moses, by faith, when he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, nor, uh, for no man can see me and live. John 1 and 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 6 and 46, Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God who has seen the Father. So again, in a context of emotional turmoil, out of the tremendous love that Christ has for those who are in front of him, in the context of telling them that he's going to depart from them very soon, again, their hearts being troubled, he's trying to encourage them. And in essence, he's telling them the same thing, that they're going to have to have the same kind of faith that they already possess in God the Father, whom they have never seen. They're going to have to have the same kind of faith in him when he is no longer present with them, when they no longer see him. Let not your heart be troubled, since you already believe in God, whom you cannot see. Believe also in me. Again, it's an imperative, right? Believe also in me. 
You, you already believe in the Father. Believe in me. Uh, again, it's another claim to deity. He's equating himself with God the Father. They're both one in nature. And when he says believe in me also, it's not belief in a salvific sense because they've already done that. It's not what he's saying. They already believe. They've left everything to follow him. They've already answered the ultimate question properly upon which all men's eternal destinies are determined. Who's Jesus Christ? Matthew 16, verse 15, he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, right? He, he is the Son of God. Uh, John 6 and uh, 68, Simon Peter answered when all those people left there at the side of the sea. They, they, they had dinner the night before. They wanted breakfast. The Lord didn't give them breakfast. So they departed. And he said to him, Simon said, at him, uh, are, are you going to leave? Uh, the Lord said to Simon, and Simon answered John 6 and 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. At the washing of the, the disciples' feet, the Lord already declared that those 11 there were truly saved. When he said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Adds a little caveat, not all of you is talking about Judas. You're already clean. So again, the leaven who are sitting before him are genuine followers of Christ, saved men. But their faith is beginning to waver. Their hearts are troubled. They're shaken. They're discouraged. And Christ knows they're going to be pressed even further in the hours that come. Because again, just in a few hours, he's going to be betrayed by a kiss. He's going to be unjustly arrested, falsely tried, and then he's going to be murdered by way of crucifixion. So as bad as things are at the moment, as troubled as our hearts are at the moment, guess what? The circumstances are only going to get worse. And out of love, he's telling them what they need to hear. And it's imperative that they're obedient to Christ who loves them, who's going to lay down his life for them. It's imperative for them to believe upon him and to trust him even as the circumstances unfold, and to trust him even in his absence when they no longer see him. Since you already believe in God whom you cannot see, believe also in me when you can no longer see me. Because Jesus doesn't need to be present visibly for his disciples to receive comfort and strength from him. He doesn't need to be present visibly visibly in fact the lord is going to commend the faith of those who have not seen him john 20 verse 29 jesus said to him because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who did not see and yet believe paul says in second corinthians 5 verse 27 for we we walk by faith not by sight peter 1 1 peter 1 8 Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Can you think, here's a second test question, I didn't tell you there was two, but can you, here's a second test question. Can you think of anybody in the room who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and has never seen him physically? Maybe, maybe one, two, I don't know. Why? 
Why do we love him? Well, we love him because he first loved us, and then secondly, we love him because we believe this book happens to be true. And all of it says, and all it reports. And we listen. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So again, the men in the room had already been regenerated. They already understood that he was the Christ, the Holy One of God. They'd seen him. They'd heard him. They'd watched him demonstrate his miraculous power, his compassion, his mercy. They'd seen. They'd believed. And again, they'd already believed in the invisible God whom they could not see. Now they need to believe in the visible Christ whom very soon, when he departs, they won't see him. But they still need to believe him and everything he says. And again, the same is true for each and every one of us. Because faith in Jesus Christ is the only true remedy for a troubled heart. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me.